Hello fellow readers and welcome back to Ravenclaw Readers with me Claire and Ella and Paul. So this week we're turning back to Shakespeare with another look at the tragedy of Hamlet Prince of Denmark. Uh, Can you tell which Shakespeare play is my favourite? And we're looking at that along with chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. Ella, do you want to remind us what happens in this chapter, please? Yes, will do. So the Christmas holidays are over and with the new term comes a breakthrough in the search for Nicholas Flamel when Harry spots his name again on Dumbledore's chocolate frog card. This leads Hermione to discover that Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone, which she guesses must be the object Fluffy is guarding. After winning the first Quidditch match of the new term, Gryffindor versus Hufflepuff, in spectacular style and record time, a euphoric Harry is wandering the grounds when he spots Snape sneaking into the Forbidden Forest. Harry follows on his broomstick and overhears Snape and Quirrell talking about Fluffy and the Philosopher's Stone. Now certain that Fluffy is guarding the stone and that Snape is after it, Harry reports back to an anxious Ron and Hermione. I am very disappointed that Snape never once actually used the name Fluffy. So, um, the scene from Hamlet we're looking at comes from Act 1 and it's scene 5. In this scene, Hamlet is confronted by the ghost of his father, the murdered king. The ghost recounts to Hamlet the details of how his sinister brother Claudius poisoned the king while he slept in the garden and Claudius then took the throne. Thus, the king had no opportunity to purge himself of sin before he died and is doomed to walk the earth for a time as penance. Importantly, he calls on Hamlet to enact revenge upon Claudius, but to do it in such a way that does not taint his soul. After the ghost's famous parting words, a Jew, a Jew, Hamlet, remember me, Hamlet launches into a frenzy over what he has just seen, but does swear to the ghost's request. Hamlet's company, Horatio and Marcellus, then seek the prince, and he asks the men to swear they will not reveal what Hamlet saw or heard that night, giving them sparse, very sparse details. Um, And so the scene closes thus, with Horatio, O day and night, but this is wondrous strange, Hamlet. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So, gentlemen, with all my love, I do command me to you, and what so poor a man as Hamlet is may do to express his love and friending to you. God willing shall not lack. Let us go in together, and still your fingers on your lips, I pray. The time is out of joint. O cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. Nay, come, let's go together. All right, thank you, Paul. Very dramatic. I tried. (laughs) So a bit as to why the secondary text was chosen. So in both uh, this chapter of the Philosopher's Stone and the scene of Hamlet, crucial information is discovered by the protagonists. Both Harry and Hamlet have to consider whether to act on this information and how to proceed. Harry is not the only character to take action in this chapter, however, as both Ron and Neville decide to stand up to Malfoy and the other Slytherins, who have been taunting them mercilessly. I wanted to think about the different motives for these actions, revenge, honour, dignity. Does motivation change how we read an action? And how do our heroes react to the respective information uncovered? The chapter starts with Harry's nightmares, which is... He mentions a flash of green light. Is this... Is this the first time he mentions that? I feel like he might have mentioned it before. No, right at the beginning when he's still in his cupboard, he has dreams where he sees flashing lights. Yeah, because I know the green light is important and we will find out why, Paul, in the fourth book. 
And it's actually Neville who helps facilitate the breakthrough in the search for Nicholas Flamel, because he's the one who says to Harry, I don't want this chocolate frog card, do you want it? Yes. And of course, there is the information they need right in front of them. So basically what happens is poor Neville comes hopping into the common room with the like leg lock jinx. Neville starts telling everyone about how Malfoy did that to him and was teasing him about not being brave enough to be in Gryffindor. And then Harry comforts Neville by giving him the chocolate frog and saying, you're worth 12 of Malfoy. So my question is, does he believe in, in, in Neville or does he have faith in Neville? So if he has faith in Neville, which is, there's a component of trust to that, trust that Neville will, like, will do better or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he does believe that Malfoy is worse than Neville because That's true. Malfoy is in Slytherin. This is inspiring to Neville because it communicates to him that his actions matter. Well, I think something that you're pointing to there is something I noticed in this chapter um, in reading it alongside the Hamlet extract in that the idea of friendship and trust between friends is very important in this particular chapter because, of course, it's Harry, Ron and Hermione who are trying to figure out the whole Nicholas Flamel thing together as a group whereas um and then neville comes in and as you say paul i think harry does have some kind of faith in neville that he you know he he is a a good person and he is a better person than than malfoy and with hamlet you don't get that sense so much he he asks his friends to swear that they won't repeat what happened that night but they don't even get the full details he doesn't really disclose to them what it is like they see the ghost and they're kind of unsure of it, but I, you're you're left unsure about how much Hamlet actually reveals to him. And he says he does use that word Hamlet. He says, you know, swear like in faith that. But Hamlet still doesn't trust them unless they swear on the sword. So they're using that word, but I don't think Hamlet does actually have trust in them unless they swear, because the the ghost does a similar thing to Hamlet, where he asks him. To, to swear with his word that he will avenge the ghost's death and, and murder. So so people are kind of, they're, they're playing on um, these individuals' roles in their society because obviously Hamlet has a duty to his murdered father and as the prince to avenge his father. And then uh, Horatio and Marcellus as not being as important as Hamlet um, have a duty to their their... Well, Horatio is, you know, one of Hamlet's friends, but he's also one of his subjects. What really struck me was not necessarily the language that they were using, but more the way that they were dealing with the situation. Mm-hmm. Because I, I read it immediately after finishing the Harry Potter chapter, and I was really struck by how different Harry and Hamlet are in their approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so Harry instantly wants to confide in Ron and Hermione in everything he discovers. And in that way, he's sharing the burden and getting their input. And it's a much more productive way of dealing with it. Whereas yeah. Hamlet just tends to shut everybody out. Yeah. Um, he has the opportunity to confide in, you know, two other friends, just like Harry, but he chooses not to. Mm-hmm. And then that way lies, I think, madness and isolation, as we will perhaps yeah. see in the rest of the play. And I think it's a, a bad choice on Hamlet's part. Mm-hmm. Not that he'd know that at the time, but I think 
it just shows how it is better to confide in people who you do trust. But I guess if you have no one to trust, yeah, like that's does, the problem. Can Hamlet actually trust these people? I always kind of liked Horatio. I always felt he was pretty trustworthy. But I can understand why Hamlet, having been betrayed by his uncle, um, and as he feels his mother as well for marrying his uncle, he, he yeah, he doesn't feel like he can trust anyone, and he can't. Um, whereas Harry has dealt with those feelings of isolation and madness in the previous chapter in the with the mirror of erised and we see ron mentioning that about yeah, yeah you see because harry tells ron about his nightmares and harry says or uh, ron says yeah you see that mirror can drive you mad so dumbledore is right when he says that yeah, um which shows one harry told ron that he saw dumbledore and that he you know related the conversation back to ron so he trusts ron for that and also that harry has dealt with that that kind of the, the possibility of madness that is awaiting Hamlet in the rest of the play. Um, so uh, this is the chapter that we get um, the first mention of the Philosopher's Stone that Hermione finds in um, in 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 one of her books, one yeah. of her many books. And so this is what it says about Nicholas Flamel. I'll just. The ancient study of alchemy is concerned with making the Philosopher's Stone a legendary substance with astonishing powers. The stone will transform any metal into pure gold. It also produces the elixir of life, which will make the drinker immortal. There have been many reports of the Philosopher's Stone over the centuries, but the only stone currently in existence belongs to Mr. Nicholas Flamel the noted alchemist and opera lover. Mr. Flamel, who celebrates his 665th birthday last year, enjoys a quiet life in Devon with his wife, Perinelle, 658. So yeah, we're introduced to this idea of the Philosopher's Stone, which is also a concept in, in alchemy um, in the real world as well. And again, it's speaking to... Um, a new branch of magic that we haven't really thought of. I mean, we, we discussed a bit about the mirror having um, this secret magic to it, um, you know, these ideas of bringing back the dead and immortality. And here we have the elixir of life. So alchemy has a very deep history. And the thing about the search for the Philosopher's Stone is apparently the, the process by which it is made is known as the magnum opus, which I thought was really interesting because that's something that we tend to refer to. For example, if you talk about someone's like great literary work is their magnum opus. So Ella's favorite book, The Great Gatsby, would be the magnum opus of F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's the, it's the great work. But like the it seems that at least a way that that has been traditionally used is through the search of the Philosopher's Stone or through like the search of how to make the Philosopher's Stone. And I don't know, I'm just like wondering what that means for this this chapter, because we see Harry trying to achieve his own magnum opus in this chapter when he is so thrilled that at the end of the Quidditch match that he catches the snitch in like five minutes, um, that he has managed to really, truly show that he's more than like just the boy who lived and he can actually achieve something and we mentioned that when harry first started flying about this is something that he can do and here he can prove himself and now he feels that he has achieved that with two two wins for gryffindor plus 
getting ahead of Slytherin in the House Cup. And also possibly, again, uh, this idea of uh, action versus inaction. And he, we've, we've seen him in a way stand up to Snape before in other chapters, like trying to retrieve his book and speaking back to him in potions class. Um, but here he doesn't let the fact that Snape is refereeing the match get in the way of his achievement. So he's kind of forming his own magnum opus here in, in, in this chapter. Uh, can a life be a magnum opus though? Or does it have to be an object? Well, the magnum opus for the Philosopher's Stone, that's not a name for the Philosopher's Stone. It's a name for the process in which the Philosopher's Stone is made, as far as I'm aware. So you're saying that his magnum opus, this is the process by which he achieves something for himself. Yeah, because the process of making the Philosopher's Stone isn't just like a physical transmutation, which it is, um, in order to turn, you know, to create something that will turn like lead into gold, like the ultimate... Um, dream like the alchemist dream Mm -hmm. but it's also implied that it is somehow a spiritual transformation so if you're looking at it from the spiritual transformation side and you know you want to read as we've mentioned before the idea of the bildungs roman like the the spiritual journey from from childhood to to adulthood i feel like that there's a process of that happening and harry's kind of undergoing his own spiritual transformation now is it's weird because talking about this idea of like means and ends that keeps cropping up is the philosopher's stone an end in itself or is it the means to making something turn into gold or uh uh giving someone immortality as the elixir of life it's kind of unclear right it's kind of both yeah because it's the end in itself and that it is the absolute pinnacle of achievement for an alchemist mm-hmm. but it's also the means because you can then use it to prolong your life yeah or create gold which is the ultimate reason why you made it in the first place so it's kind of both things at once yeah that's true so yeah like flamel can signal how great he is as an alchemist because he's created this thing but it also has these other properties and like that's all that voldemort's interested in he doesn't really care about the achievement of creating this he just cares about what it will give him so that's why he's after it. It makes me think a bit more about Dumbledore because really, although we kind of know he is this great wizard and, you know, we have a few list of what, 12 uses for dragon's blood apparently comes up a few times in the book. It hints here that, you know, he has worked on alchemy with Nicholas Flamel and it's it's kind of hinting at, well, Dumbledore does have this great magical insight in some way and we um we never get to really see that. Um, So it's kind of always a bit mysterious as to what his capabilities are and here we we see that yeah like maybe Dumbledore himself could have used the Philosopher's Stone but chose not to I like that there's this kind of element of mystery um because it's like alchemy itself Mm. I feel like even from this book we don't really learn anything about alchemy it's not something that's taught at Hogwarts it doesn't appear in any of their books um so you can never quite pin it down Mm. and I think that is really appealing in a way because you just never quite know where you stand with it. A bit like with Dumbledore. Even as we learn more about him, I feel like we can never quite pin Dumbledore down. There's always parts of him that we're never going to know. Yeah, so something I noticed that when um, looking through this chapter is so much of it is about individuals standing up to other individuals. So we have both Ron and Neville having to stand up to Malfoy because he's being so mean 
just so mean in this chapter. Uh, we have, in a way, Harry choosing to act when both, when they find out that Snape is refereeing the match, both Ron and Hermione say, don't do it. Like, they're so worried for him. Um, they're like, no, just say you're ill or just don't don't get involved both of them are um and but harry says no i have to do it because i have this duty to gryffindor and to the team and i and i think probably like to himself like i don't think that harry would want to be bested by snape through fear i think that's one of the things that we've seen with harry he is determined not to let snape bully him and not to let snape intimidate him even from the tender age of 11 um and i kind of admire that i do because i think you know snape is in this position of power that he he can he can use to his advantage and and harry is um is sticking up for himself and in when things are are unjust um so i i I like that and at this time it, it works out in harry's favor because um catches the pitch really quickly i have to say the only thing faster it seems than harry on the nimbus 2000 is malfoy's wit oh my gosh so mean i was remember i was reading this and i was saying to paul i was like i can't believe how cruel malfoy is <laughs> we get this interesting shift in mid-chapter perspective which really doesn't happen that much in harry potter at all i think it ha- happens in the two quidditch matches in this first book but after that rolling stops doing that and it mainly stays with harry except for specific chapters that are dedicated to other other characters so this is what's happening in the stands while harry is on the quidditch pitch uh malfoy um he says this really terrible thing about um, oh, I know how Gryffindor gets their team. It's people they feel sorry for. See, there's Potter, who's got no parents. There's the Weasleys, who've got no money. And then he says, you should be on the team, Longbottom. You've got no brains. That's so mean! What's annoying about Malfoy is that he um, he's he's playing a game. Mm. And Harry, Hermione and Ron are playing a more serious game. And he just disrupts <laughs> what they're doing. They they have to focus on what they believe to be Snape sabotaging, and which I believe because uh, no one has told me otherwise <laughs> that Snape has uh, is sabotaging the game, um, because of some bigger plot to do with the Philosopher's Stone, and he's just playing a schoolboy kind of uh, teasing game, and per- perhaps Hamlet doesn't include Horatio and Marcellus in in like you were saying, Ella, in the the broader game of you know the the ghost vision and because he doesn't tell them exactly the secrets that the ghost revealed to him what the ghost yeah. revealed to him yeah um so hamlet doesn't like trust horatio and marcellus to to play the serious game perhaps not but then ron and neville both just pile on Malfoy and start when they shouldn't him. frankly no it's it's a really bad move and it, this is the kind of thing I mean you know it it kind of it, it's a real repercussions here um I think like Neville tries to find his courage in in standing up to to Malfoy and Crab and Goyle and he repeats that line of I'm worth 12 of you Malfoy which is you know sweet because you know he takes the words that Harry gave him and um and uses them but then these incidents Malfoy can use to his advantage because, I don't know, I think he's just being a lot more clever about it than the other boys are being, despite... I mean, you want to root on Neville and Ron, and in a way it's, it's, it is a bit validating, 
but it, you also can't help but be a bit wary because it's like, yeah, like Ron is getting distracted from from the goal of um, the Philosopher's Stone by Malfoy in the same way that Harry was getting distracted by the mirror of Herisad. Um, because I think is it is it in the previous chapter Ron says, "Oh, I'm gonna gonna get Malfoy one of these days." So part of this motive is is through like a revenge because yeah, Malfoy's not just teasing Ron. But he's also taking, you know, Ron not having a lot of money and extending it out as like a moral judgment on his whole family. And he says things like, Longbottom, if brains were gold, you'd be poorer than the Weasleys. And that's saying something. And then later when Harry dives down to the ground because he sees the snitch, Malfoy says, you're in luck, Weasley. Potter's obviously spotted some money on the ground. It's so mean. It's just so cruel. And I'm wondering, does Ron feel a kind of sense of honor? I mean, so Hamlet's trying to honor his family, or at least his father, through revenge. And that's like a familial tie, but it's a different type of tie than than Ron has to his family. Because yeah, Malfoy's, it, it does seem to be like a moral judgment on the Weasleys because they don't have a lot of money. And, and, and Malfoy is using that as to, to, to stigmatize him. I think, uh, you know, at the end, he says you to Harry, you won the, the cup and we mm-hmm. fought the Malfoys gang. <laughs> uh, Guts and Grimble. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's their names. Name. Yep. Um, I think he's he's witnessing uh, Harry accomplish his desire. Mm. As, yes, which as is manifested true. In the, in, the, in the thing. And so mm-hmm. he wants to defend Gryffindor and, and you know... In, in the same way that Harry is championing Gryffindor by winning the game. So he takes, he takes it into his own hands and when he shouldn't have. No. Um, Hermione's been the only sensible. And Neville was right to procrastinate and he was wrong to to join the fight. You think so? Absolutely. Yeah. Even though there's no ill repercussions, except we do find out that poor Neville is still out cold in the hospital wing. Well, there is repercussions in that Malfoy knows the buttons to push. He he it yeah. gives they mm-hmm. by attacking him, it acknowledges Malfoy's um, power over them. Perhaps. Yeah, I think mm, yeah, because initially I was reading this as like a kind of yeah, you go, especially for Neville, like yeah, you go, Neville. But I think you might be right. I think I, I think I think Ron responds to his desires hmm. by fighting Malfoy but Harry decides to play the game out of a sense of duty right he he which he says uh you know if I don't do this Gryffindor won't you know Slytherin will win the cup and um they'll think that Gryffindor are are useless and and things like that so and that's the way I sort of approached both these texts then, yeah was He's going to say, who's more like Hamlet? Yeah, by thinking about the idea of uh, desire versus duty. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I did a little research. Yeah. You know, I did a little a bit of reading about this. So basically animals um, have needs um, and they want to satisfy, satisfy their desires. Mm-hmm. But rational beings use reason to pursue those interests. But they also have interests of reason. Um, and these interests arise from rationality. So an example of um, an interest of reason would be morality and 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 duty. So their cows don't have a duty to their um, pa- 
parents in the way Hamlet does have a duty to to his murdered father. This is this is um, it's a uh, th- you know morality is something specific to humans to to beings with reason. Um, so Hamlet has this this duty to uh, his father, but he has you could argue he doesn't really have that desire for the po- for power. Um, and in- interesting when when um, when the ghost first appears to Hamlet, he says, "Speak, I am bound to hear," meaning "Speak, I will hear you." Mm-hmm. And then the ghost flips that to mean that he is he has an obligation that he is bound to hear, and so art thou to revenge when uh, thou shall hear. He says, yeah. so he changes that idea of uh, "I will hear you" to "I you will." He's he's informing him of his uh, reminding Hamlet of his obligation, um, uh, and his duty to to write. Uh, the world's wrongs as as a uh, prince of Denmark. So Harry makes a sort of moral decision. He puts aside his other interests for his own safety uh, <laughs> when he chooses to to, to play the game. Mm. And Ron and Hermione both have like the, they they have the leg lock curse in case Snape tries to do anything, and they're there with a wand prepared, which is great. But as you pointed out, Paul, I mean, thankfully we know that no, Snape's not actually going to try anything. But if he were, Ron would have been completely distracted by what Malfoy is saying. So Ron actually isn't doing his duty by Harry. He's letting himself get distracted by Malfoy. Not just from the like Philosopher's Stone, but from trying to be in the situation where he can help Harry. Exactly. So he's he, it's a failure of duty on his part, oh, yeah. which is why it's it's wrong. Um, it's making me feel bad about this chapter because I want to I want to support Ron and Neville. But I think you're right. I think Ron is faced with kind of two competing duties, which is his duty to Harry, but also his duty to himself and his family. And he chooses to respond to one over the other Mm. um, because he's provoked, I suppose. If he was on the field, that kind of quick thinking would be, is necessary. And indeed we see Harry acts on impulse on the field to dive down. So you're saying it's situation dependent? I'm saying that the outcome in sport is dependent on the player's actions and procrastination uh, in sport results in failure. Mm-hmm. So that that's why Neville is not a, would not be a good Quidditch player because he, he procrastinates, he, he, he always has that moment of hesitation. We've seen when he, ta- when he sees Cerberus. Um, fluffy. Fluffy. Hamlet equally would be a bad um, Quidditch player. He, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Because he does, he does um, procrastinate. He he doesn't for, for his desire to act, which he sort of communicates in this chapter. He he, as we know, he doesn't. Well, we see Harry act on impulse as well when he goes and follows Snape into the Forbidden Forest. <laughs> yeah, but it's not that it's not a selfish impulse. Mm. Uh, it's it's more to. You see, he doesn't know the the game he's playing here, but he yeah he is he's uh he's again referring to a sense of duty and morality that he must stop this evil which is occurring or in process, which is the way Hamlet feels about trying to avenge his father's death. Mm. Or you think it's slightly different because Hamlet does procrastinate in does, in how yeah. to act on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because this this raises this question of okay, so the children are doing all this uh, research into Nicholas Flamel. And trying to find out all about him, and they find out about the philosopher's stone. But what are they actually aiming to do with this information? Is it kind of just a fun game to them? Is it just like a mystery? Like what? What do they want? Their to do? whole goal seems to be 
to stop Snape getting hold of the stone. Mm -hmm. Which I think, given that they don't really know what the stone does, they're entirely basing their motive on the fact that they think that Snape wants the stone for some nefarious purposes that they're trying to thwart. Mm -hmm. Um... So that's what I think. I think they're kind of driven by a do-gooder impulse, really. It's like, yeah. we will stop evil, even though we don't quite know don't really what know evil's how, doing or how or, we're going to do that. Or what evil is. or Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that's probably true. I mean, I do think a lot of it is chalked up to just their youth and innocence. And they're, yeah, they're, they're wrapped up in the, the mystery, which is intriguing. But also, yeah, they're like, oh, Snape's up to something sinister. We've got to stop him even though we don't know how. Which, again, I suppose speaks to, like, Hamlet, because, well, Hamlet knows what he has to do, but he doesn't really know how to do it. And I don't think, you know, he knows that he has to avenge his father's death, but he also has to do it in a way that he keeps his morality intact. Um, and, and and we see him, him grapple with that problem when um, uh, there's one point later in the play where he's, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill Claudius. And he he approaches him, but Claudius is praying. And Hamlet's like, well, I can't kill him while he's praying because he then might go to heaven. And he's always thinking about like how how to do it so that he doesn't face the same fate as the king who who didn't get a chance, who died before he got a chance to, you know, confess his sins or, or repent in any way so that he was he died uh with this taint on him and he was kind of compa- um, compelled to go to purgatory for a while the children seem to be trying all action but they don't really know what the ultimate like they can't envision really the ultimate goal they have no way of actually picturing it <laughs> uh, yeah no they definitely don't um understand the the nuances or the um, what distinguishes them from hamlet is that they they're responding to their duty but they don't know how that what action they should take necessarily yeah whilst hamlet procrastinates and doesn't take that action whilst they if they knew what they could do i think they would do it it's like Dumbledore says, does not do to dwell on philosophy and forget to act and speak exactly. which i feel like could really apply to this chapter as well because hamlet is so bogged down by philosophy Mm -hmm. and morality and trying to think through the possible repercussions of every single action that he does that he kind of forgets to really act and take any initiative really because he's so busy being the philosopher which Mm -hmm. i think harry von and hermione don't have no at all they're very kind of get up and go we don't really know where this is going but we're just going to launch into it anyway and because they're not they have a moral compass but they're not bogged down by this philosophy of trying to think everything through and i think that really works in their favor they trust their instincts they do they do does part of that come from just like being children yeah yeah i think a significant part of it yeah in a in a in a like in a positive sense you know like there is there is a benefit to that it's not like saying yeah exactly it's not like don't have a moral compass because obviously they do as you say they're they're trying to do good but they don't have the burden yet of trying to you know overthink Mm -hmm. things or question things they just do it (laughs) in david copperfield uh when copperfield is a young boy he reads all these books which have a very definitive good and bad and then he reads these sort of um that binary into his his actual life it becomes more complicated as he grows older but it's something that children are very familiar with is what i mean yeah. is that like because they read that's what disney movies are full of good and evil mm-hmm. maybe uh, hamlet is a book populated by good and evil people 
or good people doing evil un- unintentionally I don't know mm. by not acting will we end with our quote well Dumbledore here says at the end of the match when everyone's celebrating he um he puts his hand on Harry's shoulder and he says well done said Dumbledore quietly so that, uh, that only Harry could hear nice to see you haven't been brooding about that mirror been keeping busy excellent and i think that speaks to what you were saying ella it's like yeah don't get bogged down in the dreams and the philosophy you just got to keep yourself busy and active i had one point which i'm sure would horrify hermione is that knowledge doesn't always have to come from books Mm. and you should always be open to the fact that knowledge can come from unexpected sources because what we see in this chapter is that the problem that they've been pondering fruitlessly for weeks of who is Nicholas Flamel is solved by something as simple as Neville giving them a chocolate frog card, which yeah. they would never have dreamed of looking at because they thought, oh, surely he can only be in a library book. And then similarly, we get Hamlet getting this very <laughs> unwelcome knowledge from a ghost, <laughs> which is such an unexpected source. Yeah. Um, so I guess <laughs> the moral of the story that i'm trying to make here is that um always be open to the fact that you can learn stuff from unexpected and unthought of sources which i think ties into yeah dumbledore's idea of you got to keep busy because that's where you will find the knowledge the mirror mm-hmm. won't give you to the knowledge but the knowledge can be acquired Absolutely. through yeah. experience yeah often i find myself uh yeah learning things from or sources that i wouldn't have anticipated mm. like youtube videos someone will say something or they'll use a certain word and then you'll use that later on it just it, reveals a way of thinking it clicks so, in a way yeah. yeah 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 i i just feel i feel like what we're discussing this week uh is something you know that a lot of people you know th- th- this idea of yeah suffer from in their lives i think it's quite revealing it's it's like looking it's last week we looked at the mirror revealing our desires Mm. and now i'm looking in the mirror and seeing what's wrong with me (laughs) thank you so much for listening everyone next week we will be returning with chapter 14 norbert the norwegian ridgeback and we will be looking at that alongside metamorphoses once again and book three uh the story of cadmus so please join us then thanks very much bye 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 Thank you.